Tis the season to be. And then we, yeah, y'all sound jolly. Y'all sound really jolly. <clears throat> Man, this sermon series is just in time. And then, and then during the holidays, we hear, uh, what are we going to hear next? What's the big greeting next? Well, happy Thanksgiving. Somebody said Happy New Year. Not quiet. We're not there yet. Happy Thanksgiving. Then what's the next one? Merry Christmas. Happy Thanksgiving. And then Merry Christmas. And then we go back to happy again because now we're at Happy New Year. But you know, for a lot of people, that's just not true. Even during the holidays, it's just not true. As a matter of fact, it gets magnified. People who battle depression, people who battle because of the circumstances of life or because things are just not in balance mentally for them, when it kicks off with Thanksgiving, it goes all the way through New Year's, and it's anything except happy, anything except merry, anything except jolly. In fact, this time of year may trigger a huge battle with the, with the holiday blues, or perhaps even a more serious form of depression, discouragement that smolders under the surface for months and seems to come out during the holidays. I want to talk to you a little bit about the purpose of this sermon series. I hope in this series today and the next two weeks to provide you with some information from the Bible and other sources that will assist you in ministering to those who struggle. I want you to see yourself as a minister. You might be sitting here today going, you know, I don't really have the holiday blues. I don't really battle with that. Then, then see yourself as someone who can help those who do. View yourself as someone who could say a word or do an act that would bring some merry in somebody's Christmas, some happy in somebody's Thanksgiving. You want to be able to help your friends and help your family and help those who struggle with depression. Help them to understand and love. Help you to understand and love. It's a big problem. We deal with it as a staff every year about this time. Let's look at a few definitions today as we begin this series. Post-holiday depression, or PhD. I thought this was a little humorous myself. Of course, you know how I am. I can read through the Bible and see some humor, and maybe you guys don't see it, but I really help you see it, don't I? Look at this. It says, a general feeling of sadness. This is post-holiday. The word post, of course, you know, meaning after. A general feeling of sadness and depression and hatred of all things work. Can I get an amen after the holidays? Related, um, related soon after a long holiday. Symptoms of PhD usually show at least four hours into the first work day. So you're about, you get to work about nine, it gets to be about noon, 12 o'clock, all of a sudden, all that sadness and depression and wanting to slap somebody just kind of comes in there. First work day after a holiday and can linger for up to a year until the next festive season. Sounds like we need to have a festive season every month, doesn't it? No known deaths. This is good news. No known deaths have been recorded due to PhD, but severe, 
but severe case of office infighting, bickering, and crying have been noted in the IT industry soon after New Year's. Isn't that the truth? Here's a sentence for you. Sue came back after Christmas with a severe case of post-holiday depression, and she refuses to send out the invoices. So people battle with post-holiday. I remember when I was in school, they'd put up all those bulletin boards at Christmas time. How many of y'all remember bulletin boards in school? And they'd put those up Thanksgiving and Christmas and and I was like, man, get those things down so when we come back after Christmas, we don't see how happy we used to be. Do y'all remember that? And you'd come back and there'd be those same bulletin boards up and you'd go, thanks for the reminder. And then there's holiday depression that comes just during the holidays or is intensified during the holidays. These are feelings of sadness, loneliness, and depression, and anxiety in and around the holidays caused by loss of family and loved ones through death or divorce or distance from the childhood home or place where the holidays were most enjoyed in years past. That's one of the things I enjoy doing, or at least I used to. We used to go back home where I'm from for Christmas, and as time goes on, those things um, in some families, because of death and loss of grandparents, uh, you just don't do that like you used to. But I remember when I was a kid and we would do that, I always loved to go back to the old places we used to live and take pictures and get video and try to remember what seemed to be a happier time. And then there's general depression. This really is a more serious battle because it isn't just at the holidays. It's all the time but it is intensified during the holidays. It is a feeling of helplessness and hopelessness that leads to a paralyzing sadness. The source of these overwhelming negative emotions can be real. I mean, you can have real situations and circumstances of life that lead to uh, this, or it can be imagined or unknown. This person cannot see any available help in the present. And their sense of hopelessness is compounded by the fact that there doesn't seem to be any help on the horizon. So here's my challenge today, a couple of things. If you battle with depression, if you battle with um, just a sense of being overwhelmed and that sense of being overwhelmed or anxious carries with it a sense of hopelessness and sadness, and this is something you battle with all the time, I want, this, I want this sermon series to minister to you, and I want you to understand that you're not damaged goods. And I want you to understand that God loves you, and God wants to use you. God wants to do great things through your life. We all have our struggles. The one we're dealing with today, and we'll deal with for the next two weeks, is just this whole topic of depression in many levels, at many levels, and from different sources. So if you battle with that, I want you to know this church at least does not look down on you. One of the sad um, commentaries on the local church is that people who have battled in the past were given simplistic answers, pat answers, saying things like, come on, man, get it together. Hey, hey, look up. Look, here's some good things going on in your life. Hey, you, what's wrong with you? Trust God. Trust God. You ought, to, you ought to really have more faith in God. Read the Bible more. 
Read the Bible more, pray more, and you did it all. You did all of that. You received that information from people, but somehow it didn't get better. It didn't change. And you find yourself riding a roller coaster of emotion. So I want, I want to minister to you. I want to speak to you. And we're going to have altar time this morning. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm going to stop preaching early today, and we're going to have more time in the altar than we normally do. And I want to say to you that it's not going to get solved in the altar this morning, but this could be the beginning. This could be the beginning of a turnaround in your life as you bring this challenge to God in a way you never have before. This could be your starting point today that I'm going to fight this with God's help and I'm going to put up the biggest battle I've ever put up in my life and I'm going to, I'm going to get with people who can help me and I'm going to get in groups with people who can help me and I'm going to connect with material that can help me and I'm going to connect with spiritual uh, mentors and leaders who can help me. And this could be the beginning of a freedom you've never known in this area. So, so that's the challenge for those of you who battle. For those of you who don't battle, I want you to become more sensitive to people who need your ministry. You're blessed not to be in this battle. You're blessed not to have this battle. So then ask God, God, what can I do? How could I help? How can I be a blessing? Well, first of all, you've got to be able to see it and recognize it and discern it. So you pray and say, God, maybe I, maybe I because I don't battle with it, maybe I don't see it. Because I don't struggle myself, maybe I don't recognize it in other people that I love and care about. So Lord, help me to see it. Help me to recognize it in other people. Teach me what to say. Lead me by your Holy Spirit to know when to reach out with that touch that might encourage or that word that might encourage. So those are the challenges. I wanna read an article to you, it's not very long. Journalist Michael Carr and Dr. George Krusik wrote an article on the topic of holiday depression. I want to just read some of the highlights from that article. Holidays are supposed to be a time of joy and celebration, but for many people, they're anything but joyful. Depression can certainly occur at any time of the year, but the stress and anxiety of the holiday season, especially during the months of November and December, can cause even those who are usually joyful to experience what many call the holiday blues. Part of the problem is the bombardment of media during the holidays showing images of smiling faces and friends. People may start to question the quality of their own lives and relationships, and I can see that. I mean, some of the commercials that you see uh, during the holidays, I mean, just ideal settings and ideal family settings, ideal uh, food and home and, and everybody's got money and, and everybody can buy whatever they want and the lights are perfect and the snow is perfect and everything's perfect. And, and when you see those images over and over and over again, if you're already prone to battle with your personal life and, and what's going on in your personal life, seeing that just magnifies it. You begin to question, why isn't my life like that? Why don't I get to have a Christmas like that? According to a Canadian study of patients treated by emergency psychiatric services during the Christmas season, the most common stressors were feelings of loneliness and being without a family. 
When I read that, I thought about what a great opportunity we have right here at the bridge. What a great opportunity we have to be in a military town. And, and I, I just can't even imagine. I, I've, never, I've never been away from home at Christmas. I, I don't remember a time that I've ever been away from home at Christmas. And our military families do it all the time. I, I, I was just touched by the story Pastor Andy shared this morning of the young lady who had uh, how many children under seven and under? May the Lord be with her. She might be here this morning. Um, we have that opportunity. We have a ministry called Call to Arms, and there's a big meal on Thanksgiving Day that we serve all the military. And I think he talked about that a little bit. We had tons of volunteers. Actually, on that day, we have almost more volunteers than we know what to do with. But, but that's fine. That's wonderful. But, but not just here at church and not just in a group setting and not just in an organized event. Here, here's the challenge I want to lay out before you as a church. We are the body of Christ. We are a ministering body. We, I, part of my vision for our church, and I believe yours too, is that we are a healing place. But, the, but to be a healing place, you've got to be sensitive to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. You got to be listening to his voice. You got to be walking tight with God so that when you encounter these situations, he's able to speak to you and he's able to move your hand and move your heart and move your lips to say the right word, to do the right act that will bring that encouragement. So I want you to begin to pray. What can I do during the holiday season? What can I do during Thanksgiving, Christmas, and as we round the end of this new year and come into a new year? Uh, 2015, what can I do to be a blessing to somebody, well, who's away from home? Somebody who's battling loneliness. Somebody who's lost a loved one this year who's not going to be at the Christmas table, not going to be at the Thanksgiving table. It's not going to be unwrapping gifts with everybody this year, even though they were right there doing that last year. Lord, help me to minister. Help me to be a minister Help me to not only be somebody who goes, well, my, my life's great. Everything's going on great in my life, so I don't really have any problems. Help me to look around and see who I can help, see who I can bless, see who I can minister to. There's a myth about the holiday season, though, and that is that uh, it's about suicides. And we've often said it, and I've probably said it because I've always heard it, and here's the way that myth goes. More people commit suicide between Thanksgiving and Christmas than any other time of the year. It's been repeated so many times, most people consider it common knowledge. Although it sounds reasonable, it actually isn't true. Contrary to popular belief, December actually has the fewest suicide attempts of any month of the year. The facts, while seemingly encouraging, may be more complicated, however. Listen to this. While it's true that suicide attempts tend to drop off just before the holidays and during the holidays, there is a significant, excuse me, there is a significant uptick in suicide rates following Christmas, right after Christmas. A 40% increase in suicides following Christmas. Christmas seems to have a protective effect with regard to certain psychological struggles, say researchers, but there's a significant rebound effect immediately following the holidays. Take note of that. Take note of that because I think 
If we believe the myth, then we believe that when the holidays are over, okay, everybody's good. When actually that's when the problem really kicks in. Although fewer, uh, although fewer people utilize emergency services or attempt suicide during December, there is an increase in certain kinds of behavior, including mood disorders, such as a general dissatisfaction with life, leading to an increase in alcohol abuse and substance abuse. One of the biggest predictors of depression is social isolation. How many times have I preached that? How many times have I told you that one of the main things the enemy wants to do is isolate you? It'll make you feel like because something happened in your family or uh, something happened with somebody in your family or because you've got a certain challenge or your child has a certain challenge that you're not like everybody else and so they're gonna, and so the enemy tries to isolate you. That's why I brought up right at the beginning of the message that I don't want you to consider yourself damaged goods. That's one of the things the enemy does with this whole depression thing is he makes you feel like people don't want to be around you, that people don't want to connect with you, and then he, that makes you not want to connect with people. Remember that, and I know I've said it so many times, but remember it. Isolation is a trick of the enemy. There are lonely people sitting all around you in this place this morning. There are lonely people right here, right now, who need to connect, who need to make a friend, who need to have somebody they can spend some time with. People who are lonely or have feelings of disconnectedness often avoid social interactions at holiday time. Unfortunately, withdrawing uh, often exacerbates the feelings of loneliness and symptoms of depression. These individuals may see other people spending time with friends and family and say, why can't that be me? Why can't I have a family like that? Why is everyone so much happier than I am? For many people, the holidays are, painful, are a painful reminder of what once was. This is especially true for people who have experienced a significant loss such as the death of a spouse, a child, someone they love, someone close to them, or, or even a breakup, a divorce, a separation. So let's talk about Christians. What about Christians? I mean, we're not supposed to be depressed, are we? We're not supposed to have this problem, are we? I know many Christians who do. We have people in our church who battle. Let me just say this, and you can agree with this or disagree with this, um, if what I'm about to say offends you, just come up after the service and I'll forgive you. So listen. I believe there's a depression that comes from circumstances. Circumstances of life, a lost job, lost income, a, a lost marriage, a death in the family, um, um, conflict, broken relationships. We could go on and on. A sickness, uh, ongoing suffering. There are many, many, many things uh, circumstantial things in our life, circumstances, situations in our life that can cause us to be depressed. But ladies and gentlemen, there are people who battle a deep depression who don't have bad circumstances in their life. And I don't know where that comes from, and I'm going to use a word here that could be offensive, but I don't mean it to be offensive. It's a mental battle. It's a mental disorder. You know, when I had my stroke a few weeks ago, they did a whole bunch of tests on me 
I just mailed my heart monitor in, so I guess they're going to call me back and go, you're still alive. That's your first good news. And then they're probably going to prescribe some medicine for me. That's a physical thing. Now, here's, how, here's what I believe about depression. And just bombard me with emails. I just believe depression is, is something that goes on physically in the body sometimes that doesn't have anything to do with a person's circumstances. And those people are good Christians. Many of them are followers of Jesus Christ and they love their Bible and they love their church and they love their God, but there is a black cloud that will come over their life from time to time and they just wanna curl up and get under the bed. They just wanna hide. And they're, 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 they're people who know God and they're people who have good situations in their life. And they'll go to a doctor and they'll go, I gotta have some help. And that doctor will go, you know, you know a good doctor will, will be very careful about this, but, but they will go, I think we're gonna need to try some medication. And for, for so long, the church has frowned on people like that and said, you need to get off that medicine. The Lord said uh, to be joyful. He also said to know when to keep your mouth shut, but you're not doing it right now. You know, that's what you want to say back to that person. The Lord said to be joyful. He is the joy. He is the source of your joy. And, and uh, a joyful heart is good like it. And they start quoting all these scriptures to, to that person. That person goes, man, I know all that. I don't. I don't know what's going on and what you're saying is actually making me go deeper into this hole and feel worse about what's going on with me. And so I, I know people who take that medicine, they take medicine. And I'm not saying medicine's the answer every time, but I'll tell you what, sometimes it is the answer. The Bible says all good things come from the Lord. And I gotta tell you something, there are some good medicines God has allowed man to make. Amen? Amen. Now, I believe in deliverance, and I believe, I believe a person could come to the altar today and somebody could pray with them, and, and I believe they could be set free. I believe God can do that. I believe God can heal cancer. I believe in miracles. I, I believe God can, can open the blinded eyes and the deaf ears, but sometimes he don't. And I don't have the answer for that. And I can plug you into some TV preachers who have the answer for that. And usually it boils down to them getting some kind of donation. Amen? But I'm just telling you, we live in a sin-cursed environment. And none of us are isolated in a bubble from physical and mental challenges, stressors, and, and all kind of things that go on in our life. So I'm telling you, I can't promise you, when you come to the bridge, I can't promise you that if you're a person of color, you're not going to turn into a, ra you're, you're not going to turn into a racist, that you're not going to run into a racist. <laughs> if you're a person of color, you might run into a racist here at this church, but glory to God, that's where that racist needs to be so they can get delivered from that. You, you might come to this church and battle depression. You might run into somebody who walks up to you right after service today and goes, come on, brother, have some faith. But I'm telling you, that's not this church speaking. It might be that person speaking, but it's not this church. If you run into racism at this church, that might be that person being a racist, but not this church. You understand what I'm saying? So I'm speaking as, a, as the leader of the church, and I, somebody sent me an email 
this week about something somebody said to them in our church. I don't even know who the person was. They said, I can't believe you got people like this in your church who say blah, 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 you know. And I'm like, sure we do. We welcome anybody, even you. <laughs> Look, you might see a bumper sticker or you might... I heard a person of color came to our church one time and they saw a bumper sticker out in the parking lot and, and they felt like that bumper sticker was a racist message. And they came to the front of the church and said, uh, uh, I, I'm going to tell you what, if that's the kind of people, well, that isn't the kind of people that come to this church. People like that need Jesus. They need to be in this church. Amen? So, I don't know how I got off on that, but it's pretty good. Listen. So you, you might battle depression, and you might have some person say something really stupid to you, you know, about depression, how you need to get over it. But that's not this church. We'll help you any way we can. We're glad you're here. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you what I've found. People who struggle with stuff, God usually uses them to bless people who struggle with the same stuff. Have you ever noticed that? It's awesome. So let's talk about Christians. John W. Stott was a great biblical expositor, and he said, a Christian's two chief occupational hazards are depression and discouragement. A Christian, a Christian's two chief occupational hazards are depression and discouragement. So if you think as a Christian, you're immune to depression and it can never happen to you, I want you to look at a few scriptures that I've chosen for us today. Now I'm going to read a passage of scripture and it's not going to come up on the screen until we get to the key verse. And then the key verse is going to come up on the screen. So let's read about Moses. And to read about Moses, <clears throat> we're going to turn in the Bible to a book called Numbers. It's in the Old Testament. Numbers chapter 11, verses 10 through 15. 15 is the key verse. It'll pop up here in just a minute. So let's read verse 10. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. I love the New Living Translation, and I uh, believe you will too in your studies. encourage you to get one of those. Uh, if you're looking for a Bible for Christmas or looking for a Bible for somebody for Christmas, the Life Application Bible is a great Bible. Anybody got that? Life Application, that's awesome Bible. And uh, awesome commentary, and I'd always get it in the New Living Translation. It, it's really great for... Uh, especially new Christians or people who are new to the Bible. So Numbers 11, verse 10, Moses heard, listen to this, Moses is like the pastor. So Moses heard all the family standing in the doorways of their tents whining. And the Lord became extremely angry, and Moses was also very aggravated. I love the language in the, in the New Living, verse 11. And Moses said to the Lord, why are you treating me so... So here, here's all the people, and you know, they were in Egyptian bondage. So Moses leads them out of Egyptian bondage. They go through the Red Sea. The Red Sea comes in, wipes out Pharaoh's army, and, and now here they are out in the wilderness. And uh, they're whining and complaining. As a matter of fact, they whined and complained. And this is one of the things they said. It would be better if we were back in Egypt. So Moses is standing there listening to this, and I love what the Bible says here. He's getting aggravated. How many of you know it's all right to get a little aggravated from time to time? And God's even, and here's that Hebrew word, ticked off. God's a little ticked off here. 
And so I just think, I don't know. See, I see funny stuff in the Bible. So Moses is mad and God's upset. And Moses is mad about the same thing God's mad about. But now Moses turns on God. And he looks at God and he says, he says, why are you treating me, your servant, so harshly? Why did you give me these people? <laughs> That's Pharaoh Hardison version. Why are you treating me, your servant, so harshly? Have mercy on me. What did I do, listen to this, to deserve the burden of all these whiny people? <laughs> I love verse 12. Did I give birth to them? Oh, I love that, because here's the modern translation. Moses going, am I dead daddy? I ain't dead daddy. That's southern now. You, you people from out west and up north, write this down. I ain't took them to raise. He goes, did I give birth to these people? No, I didn't. <laughs> did I bring them into the world? No. Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms like a mother carries a nursing baby? How can I carry them to the land you swore to give their ancestors, the promised land? Moses goes on, where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? They keep whining to me saying, give us meat to eat. <laughs> Verse 14, Moses goes, listen to this. Moses says, I can't carry all these people by myself. The load is far too heavy. And look at Verse 15. He says, God, if this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me. Do me a favor and spare me this misery. Moses was a man of God. Moses was a man of faith. He felt so miserable, so wretched, so hopeless, so helpless, so discouraged that he said, oh God, if you really loved me, you'd kill me. Now that's some depression right there. Look at Elijah. Elijah. 1 Kings 19, uh, 1 and 2. And Bill got home, when Bill got home, he told um, Hillary, no, that, wait, that's wrong, that's wrong, wait just a minute, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, let me, let me read that right, let me read it right. When, they got, when Ahab got home, he told Jezebel, okay, now I got it, now, I'm, I, look, I apologize, I won't apologize to any Hillary fans here, but that was just two right there. Not to do that right there. <laughs> Again, if I offended you, you come up right after church and I'll forgive you. Let's go on. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, including the way Elijah had killed all the prophets of Baal, which Elijah didn't really kill him, God did. Verse 2. So Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. Listen to this. Jezebel said to Elijah, May the gods, not your God, but my gods, my false gods, may they strike me and even kill me if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you just as you killed them. Now Elijah had just seen fire come down from heaven, so I don't know why Elijah didn't go, Bring it, sister. Bring it. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. So it wasn't Ahab he was worried about. 
It was Jezebel. When Jezebel spoke, he knew it would happen. He went to Beersheba. I thought it said for men he went and had a beer, but it says, it don't say that. It's not in your Bible. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. He was afraid. Fled for his life. Look at verse 4. Here it comes. Elijah. Then Elijah went on how? What does Satan love to do? Isolate us. Loves to isolate us when we're down. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. Notice all that. We're going to talk about it more next week. He sat down under a solitary broom tree and prayed that he might what? He said, I have had enough, Lord. Anybody ever felt like that? It's all right to be honest. Anybody ever felt like that? I've had enough. If you're not going to kill me, kill them. You know, I've had enough. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. So here's a depressed man. God, I've had it up to here. I'm ready to throw in the towel. Kill me if you really love me. Look at another one, Jonah. Jonah got mad at God because he didn't like God's will in a particular matter. I mean, Jonah's the kind of evangelist you want to come to your church. Because here's the deal. God told Jonah to go preach to the people of Nineveh so they would be saved. Old Testament saved. But Jonah didn't go. He, you know the story. He got on a boat down to Tarsus and they found out he was the problem, threw him over the side. Big fish swallowed him. You know, all that stuff. So, so Jonah hates the people of Nineveh because there's a history with them. They were very barbaric people, very evil people who had been very evil to the children of Israel. So here's Jonah's revival plan. He was the, pre he was the preacher. He was the revival speaker. Here's his revival plan. Here's what we'll do, God. Here's what we'll do. I will preach to them. I'll do it. I'll tell them, but they will not believe you and you will kill them. What a great plan. I mean, that was Jonah's plan because Jonah just thought about what they deserve. How many of you are glad God, on the day you needed his salvation, did not give you what you deserved, he gave you what you needed? Because if he gave us what we deserve, we wouldn't be sitting here right now, would we? But Jonah wanted them to get what they deserved, and he thought they deserved death. So God said, no, I'm going to let you preach to them, and many of them are going to believe. They're going to believe in me and follow me. So the Bible says Jonah got mad. Jonah 4, 1 and 3. It says, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. How many of you know depression and anger go together? Just what? Just kill me when? Lord, I'd rather be dead than alive. So... Here, here's the deal. These are good men. These are men of faith. These are godly men. These are heroes of the Bible who had their moments of deep depression to the point of crying out for God to take their life. And here's my point to you. If you battle with any form of depression at any level, again, let me repeat, you are not damaged goods. These biblical examples prove that God wants to use you, can use you, to do great things through him. Now, what we'll talk about next week are the causes.
why did these men get like this? And what can cause us to sink into depression? And then on the last week, we'll talk about preventative measures, things you can do to prevent depression from locking up your life and, and making your life continually miserable. Here's the deal. There's a way out. There's a way out. Those of you who are sitting here and you're battling depression, I'm telling you right now, there's a way out. The God I serve loves liberty. The God I serve loves freedom. The God I serve hates bondage. And yes, you're in a battle, but I'm telling you, God wants you to know a freedom you've not known in a long time or maybe you've never known at all. God loves you, and this church loves you, and this pastor loves you, and our staff loves you. And that's why we wanted to speak to you in this series.